Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. Collective Insights and the work we do at Neurohacker Collective is made possible from the support of our community and the sales of our product, Qualia. Qualia is a comprehensive mental enhancement supplement designed to improve focus, mood, and flow state. Learn more about Qualia at neurohacker.com and use coupon code Collective Insights for $20 off your first order. Hey everyone, welcome to the Neurohacker Collective podcast, Collective Insights. My name is Daniel, here with Jordan Greenhall today. This is a particularly fun and exciting interview for me because Jordan happens to be the co-founder of Neurohacker Collective. So we've been working together on this for uh, some time now. And uh, before Neurohacker that led to us uh, doing this together, uh, he and I were and are still working on other projects in the civilization design space, future of governance, future of sense making, future of macroeconomics, future of infrastructure. How do we do this um, civilization thing better? <clears throat> and uh, so I've been looking forward to actually getting to do this interview for a long time. I'm delighted to do it now. Just very short background on Jordan's. We have some reference. Much of the um, technology that we all experience every day uh, in terms of streaming video, streaming audio, Jordan played a major role in that being available. He, a multiple tech entrepreneur in the decentralization of centralized industry space. So he was on the founding team of uh, mp3.com that was one of the first uh, plays to decentralize kind of the music industry. And uh, then last business venture was, uh, he was the founder of DivX, which was the first company that really decentralized and uh, a lot of what Hollywood and media were doing by making video streaming. And so now we have YouTube and Vimeo based on that first move in the space. And then after realizing uh, that decentralizing industries with tech wasn't enough to actually build better systems by itself. He uh, kind of retired, went to Santa Fe Institute, uh, joined the team there, became a part of the board of trustees and spent a number of years studying complex systems. Already had a strong background in history and law and uh, sci-fi and futurism and philosophy. And um, it started really thinking about how do we build uh, viable future complex systems started a project there called Game B, which is if Game A of current civilization model is end of life, what does Game B look like? And that's when he and I met and started working in that space. And uh, so then when, when uh, we started uh, Neurohacker, I was actually delightedly surprised that it was something he wanted to get into because he hadn't been working in the medicine biotech space. So uh, I think we'll start there. But first, Jordan... Thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Daniel. It's fun. It's uh, it was amusing coming into the office and uh, knowing that you and I, who actually spend a lot of time talking to each other, are now talking to each other uh, publicly in this vehicle. Yeah, and you're sitting in the seat that I'm normally sitting in when recording these. There, yep. the uh, sign behind us. Okay, so why did you? Why were you interested in getting? involved with something that's working in the health, wellness, neuropsych, medicine space at all? Because it's different enough than things like information tech. Um, why, was, why does that seem like a meaningful thing? 
Well, okay. So you, you mentioned the notion and the distinction between game A and game B. And uh, I had spent a substantial amount of time taking a look at both of these things kind of from the point of view of game design um, and incentive structures. And as you mentioned, te- decentralized versus centralized technology and how that changes people's behaviors and attitudes and decisions and capabilities. Um, but what, what became increasingly clear was that um, whether you're playing game A or game B, uh, you're playing these games with and hopefully for people. Um, and a, a, a sizable amount of what actually happens in the game is a consequence of the people uh, who are playing. And the, for, for example, the level of well-being, um, their level of uh, capacity. Uh, are they suffering? Are they um, in pain? Are they sick? Um, are they limited by particular kinds of beliefs, frameworks, or, or ideas? Um, and so, and then, as it turns out, uh, game A is in many ways simultaneously uh, designed to not have that much dependence on the well-being capacity of discrete individual humans. Uh, it's you know the, the, the bureaucracy. It's a fit into this particular square, and all the rest of you can go away. And as long as you can do your job okay, it works all right. Uh, whereas game B, as it turns out, is substantially more dependent on well, what we've called sovereignty, the sovereignty of the individuals who are playing the game. Um, and then just to kind of go one more step, uh, I think largely as a consequence of the fact that game A doesn't care that much about the well-being of the individual human beings who are part of it. It doesn't need them to be uh, well-rounded and, and capable. Uh, it also tends to produce uh, quite significant limitations and constraints in human capacity. Uh, so we end up in a situation where um, even if we're reasonably effective in building out a lot of the other elements of game B, say, for example, an alternative economic model, um, if the human beings who are coming out of game, Bay, game A sorry, don't have the ability to play game B for whatever reason, uh, then it's a non-starter. So that was the, the impetus for me, at least, to begin looking in the space. And then, of course, that's where you'd spent a substantial fraction of your life. So you said if the people don't actually have the well-being and the sovereignty, those were kind of key terms to be able to play a different game. And in in game A, people's ability to be productive within a narrow niche matters, and that's kind of all that matters. Um, Their ability to be uh, healthy, whole, sovereign outside of that narrow niche. And since the narrow niche usually doesn't require them self-assessing what needs done outside of the narrow boundaries, we can actually squish people into kind of narrow AIs or robots, right? Right. And so um, this is very different. I mean, this is almost like the intersection of education and um, personal development and health altogether. Right. Well, yes. Yes. I think that's right. And I think that it's funny. In fact, the fact that we've partitioned those into three different domains <clears throat> is part of the problem. Okay. So speak to the future of that. Why, what's different than saying the future of medicine when we say the future of well-being science? Um, okay. So for, for reasons, I think both good and bad, uh, for example, and we can do this in education or personal development, uh, medicine has, uh, it's, an, it's part of the analytical methodology, right? So it's taken a whole bunch of stuff and decided this is not part of medicine and we just focus on these subdomains. So the, you know, the health of the physical body and in particular, 
the lack of a named sickness of the physical body is the domain under investigation. Um, and that's, that's kind of major move number one. Uh, and I note, by the way, that psychiatry, for example, is a branch of medicine that takes into consideration the uh, presence of certain kinds of named maladies in uh, the mind. Um, but of course, it also does it through the channel of the body as the primary uh, mechanism. Um, and then intriguingly, for reasons that we probably don't have time to go into, um, these kinds of moves in game A also tend, not, not, not only not only analytically narrowing to very specific prescribed domains, they also tend to the grab particular tools um, and use those tools to the exclusion of other tools. So what happens in medicine then is that we get a combination of a, of a handful of tools that are diagnostic and um, ameliorative in nature, uh, pharmacology being a primary one, surgery being another primary one, um, that then what happens is you get this nice trade-off that uh, to the extent that there is a named problem in the body, a disease, for which these tools work, uh, medicine is check, good to go, and can generally actually provide pretty high-quality solutions. But to the degree to which there is either an intradomain problem, something that's happening between, say, medicine and education, um, or a trans-domain problem, something that doesn't actually currently have a domain at all that's ascribed to it, um, or something that has um, characteristics that are not particularly amenable to these tools, then we find ourselves in a situation where the, uh, the approach of contemporary medicine ends up being um, limited and, and oftentimes even counterproductive. Um, and so, you know, we can un unpack that and create examples of that sort of thing over and over. Um, I mean, diabetes is, is a case that medicine itself has already identified. Within the medical toolkit, diabetes shows up first and foremost as something that can be resolved through the intervention of insulin. And at the medical level, that's actually a pretty good solution. Um, but what we see, of course, is that diabetes is a complex phenomenon that includes everything from what kind of choices individuals make in what kinds of foods they eat, what kinds of health, uh, what kind of fitness regimen, sleep regimen, um, what kinds of uh, um, other kinds of behaviors they engage in, who the social environment they put themselves in, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And all of these are problems that medicine has defined as out of scope, out of domain. And so then you might kick it up and say, well, the healthcare industry, notice that they rebranded, the healthcare industry has endeavored to figure out how to address the larger combinatorial uh, causes associated with diabetes and is actually self-conscious of the fact that it does a rather poor job. You know, health uh, behavior change is a thing that's been around now for decades and is more or less identified in healthcare as just a hard problem that, the, the, that um, hasn't been solved particularly effectively. Um, and of course, diabetes is a, an easy one, but there are much larger ones that we can actually grab that are even less amenable to medicine, yet nonetheless are fundamentally identified as things around well-being and human capacity. Okay, so I'm, I'm fishing here, but why is behavior change so hard when we look at a bigger picture? Say we take diabetes, why is behavior change off of eating too much sugar, too many carbohydrates, not enough nutrient-filled food and exercise within our larger macro system. So not just within medicine, but like everything that's conditioning that. Why is that so hard? And a related question of, you said we wouldn't have time to go into it fully, but that medicine ends up narrowing to just having certain tools, right? So then why does it have these tools and not other tools? Obviously, we're getting into like economics and, you know, incentive and, um, but that's worth speaking to. Yeah. And in, in 
it, it actually harkens back to this notion of different games because at least part of the answer, and there's many different aspects to this question, but at least part of the answer uh, is identified by the name uh, attractor or basin of attraction. So and I'm actually going to shift from medicine for a moment so we can uh, kind of see the, the whole thing from a different perspective. Let's take a look at education. So it's you know relatively well understood that the American educational system is, has challenges. Um, and one of the things that many people who try to do reforms in education notice is that um, they have a, an experience a little bit like trying to push a, a heavy ball up a hill um, where they get it, say, three quarters of the way up, uh, but then as soon as they let go, the ball rolls all the way back downhill. And that the reason for that, there's actually a basin of attraction uh, of a lot of different kinds of forces. For example, in education, you have the linkage between what's called credentialization, which is to say, for example, you go to school to get into college, you go to college to get a good degree, you get a good degree, which is to say you get a good credential so that you can get a good job. So you actually have this binding between the labor market and the education market that actually makes it so that things that you do in education, if they actually show up as not improving people's job prospects, won't work. Like they'll, they'll just be eroded away. They're the rolling downhill of the ball in education. Uh, and we can actually identify other kinds of domains that uh, reinforce each other in this fashion. So what ends up happening is that in many ways, game A is, has evolved over time to be one gigantic self-reinforcing basin of attraction. And so uh, past certain minor limits, uh, if you push really, really hard against something in one subdomain, again, no, coming all the way back in medicine, um, you can make a lot, of, a lot of traction in getting people to take insulin. But you know, if you're not dealing with things like, say, for example, the media and advertising industry that is hitting everybody's brain constantly saying, eat junk food, um, or the junk food industry that is modifying um, the content of food so as to maximally uh, hijack the way that our brain interprets what is a good choice. Um, Tristan Harris calls this uh, hijacking uh, evolution 1.0. Uh, you and I talk about it in terms of hypernormal stimuli. Um, then you're, you're, you're screwed, right? You end up with a whole bunch of human beings who are taking insulin but are, in fact, you know, eating food that's bad for their bodies and um, being... Uh, unable to make those choices. So it's one of these weird things where you actually have to be able to grasp the complexity of the whole problem. And then as a single movement, get the entire system begin to shift very, you know, and very subtly, by the way, notice which pieces are pulling, which pieces are pushing, modify here and there until in fact you've engineered or developed, in fact, in some sense, nudged the system into a new place. And then when it's in that new place, that new place is in fact stable and it'll hold in that location. You're no longer worried about the ball rolling down the hill. Um, and so that's actually, you know, I'm, I'm, to kind of loop back, why I moved from where I was into the domain of well-being, which was that I had identified that while we were actually making really good progress in places like, say, blockchain, in moving economic systems, um, and in decentralized media and software moving, say, media systems, um, I at least wasn't at the time aware of anything that was meaningfully being done in, this, in the domain of well-being. And these things are all connected. And so we actually have to be really thinking about all of it at once and how they all fit together if we want to make this transition from A to B happen. Okay, so you hit on a really core topic that I just want to um, kind of highlight. And for people who haven't thought about this much, it sounds profoundly cynical, but it also is inescapable, is <clears throat> from the business supply side, addiction is profitable. 
Sure. If someone is addicted to the stuff that I sell, I'm going to sell more of it than if they have the ability to say no and not take it often. And so whether we're talking about food, if I'm selling more addictive stuff, then people are going to eat it more often. And if I make more money by how many times people buy my thing, maximize lifetime revenue of a customer, then I have a financial incentive to optimize towards maximum addictiveness. And so interestingly, right, I'm going to figure out how to market in the most compelling ways because behavior change actually isn't hard there. They were pretty, pretty good at getting people to eat the shitty food, right? Right. And then the, the fun thing is, I mean, the fun, terrible thing is then that actually predisposes them needing the medicine and the medicine companies also make more money when you need more medicine. And as the people get sicker from eating more food that they're addicted to and then get addicted to meaning dependent upon the, the, the diabetes medicine or the statin or the whatever it is that came from that food, GDP goes up in both cases. Right. Yeah, I think, I think there's actually two or well, there's a bunch of stuff in there, but let me, let me see if I can tease two things out. Um, so, so one is the, the fact that because of some of the, the kind of the deep characteristics of game A, um, which one of my, uh, collaborators, uh, Jim Rudd identified as money on money return. And so if you look at game A, the, the primary way to win game A is to increase the rate at which your money is making more money. Um, and I say that because if, if you look at the kind of the, um, the slope of game A uh, over the past 50 years or so, maybe 80 years, um, what you'll notice is that uh, there's a, a, a gradual and continual slide from or towards that direction. And right? so let's say, for example, to put it very prosaically, in the beginning, the rule might be something like do the right thing. Um, and then the second rule might be something like uh, make as much profit as you can. Um, but what ends up happening is that somebody who plays by that rule compared to somebody who say plays by the rule of make as much profit as you can. Oh, and, and also do the right thing. Right. So that minor shift of orientation means that the person who plays by the second rule is going to actually make more money. And by virtue of doing that is more likely to be able to say, get more access, more power. Uh, they'll go up the ladder. They'll have more choice making. And of course they'll have more money with which to make more investments. Uh, but it's not a very long step from, uh, make as much profit as you can and try to do the right thing to make as much profit as you can and um, say, do what is legal. That was actually a move. That, that move actually happened. And then you've got something along the lines of do what is arguably legal. And then it's not too far to say, well, do what you can get away with. Then maybe uh, do what you, where getting caught is less expensive than not getting caught. Um, or, or the profits you make by virtue of doing what you're doing. And then even to the point of um, where the costs of, of bribery, corruption, um, greenwashing, um, manipulation, et cetera, is less expensive than the benefits of playing the other way, right? And so it's like a, it is in fact a, a race to the bottom, a downward slope. But the problem is that at each step, the underlying intrinsics of what kinds of behaviors are rewarded in game A leads to movement down that slope being actually showing up as a winning strategy. And of course, then we end up with what I think many of us observe today, where a, a person who runs a pharmaceutical company who does not in fact um, jack up prices to the highest they can possibly get away with um, is in fact a loser and will end up either um, being bought out by somebody who's playing more aggressively, being thrown out by their shareholders or board of directors, 
um, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And so this is a, uh, it's not a necessary characteristic of, of the way that human beings operate in the world, but it turns out to have been, um, one of the characteristics of, of game a, which had lots of virtues, which should be quite clear, like the way the game was designed and, and the fact that it ended up winning, um, <clears throat> in the 20th century showed up lots and lots of positives. So what we're observing now is, is not that game A was sort of always a terrible thing, but rather that um, there's certain characteristics of that style of play that ends up in a bad place. Um, and so now the effort is to say, okay, is there, how do we, while we still have a, a reasonably safe place to do this in, um, figure out how to actually transition to some other kind of game, which hopefully is in fact one that doesn't naturally end up in a bad place by doing what it does. I.e., we engineer the basis of attraction properly of the whole system dynamics up front. At least we endeavor to. Right? We try to be, at least be mindful of it, be thoughtful of, of what are the likely uh, places where this thing ends up as it gets to maturity. What are the, uh, the underlying uh, characteristics of what winning plays look like for individuals and groups so that uh, it's, actually, it's actually called niche construction. So we, would in fact, want to construct the niche so that as people attempt, attempt to figure out how to do the best they can in that niche, their choices, their local choices, will always tend to actually inure to the global best answer. So for anyone who's listened to the podcast a lot, um, you will hear that two of the three major areas that uh, Neurohacker focuses on in hoping to do things in the health and wellness space working to do things in the health and wellness space that couldn't be done in the primary medicine space right now um, are one, that the financial incentives in the current system are wrong. And so he was obviously just speaking to that, which is uh, if someone who is, uh, if preventing illness ends up meaning that you don't sell your product and uh, treating, curing illness quickly means that you can only charge as much as you have for a short time, but managing the symptoms of illness for a very long time is very profitable. That's a perverse incentive system. Um, if treating the side effect of a drug that you give someone involves them having to buy another drug that you also make, and it's called an upsell, that is also a problem. So we focused on, is there a way that we can actually get out of the financial incentive trap that most of medicine research is in. And then also that the epistemology is wrong, meaning it narrows too much. Uh, let's call this a nameable disease and let's find one synthetic molecule or you know one surgery that will be able to correct some symptomatic part of it, as opposed to looking at the more complex set of dynamics and how can we work with the complexity that's generating them. So um, just... I, uh, appreciating that as Jordan's talking about this, he's naming some of the core principles of what neurohackers endeavoring to do. Um, I wanted to say when you said money on money return, so that brings up the thought of financial services and that people start mistaking production and extraction. Um, as you know, one of the dynamics that financial services can not meaningfully increase the production of the types of goods and services that increase the quality of life of everyone while still extracting a lot. Sure. This is one of the main things that has made blockchain so exciting to so many people in the last few years is not just to decentralize anything, but largely to decentralize financial services for this reason. And so 
this an area that you've worked in a lot. And you were also talking about how do we get the incentive structures right for things like diabetes. I'm curious, as you think about uh, the role that things like blockchain could have in changing the financial structures and the incentive structures in medicine, health, wellness, education, some thoughts to share on that. Wow. Okay. So that's, there's a lot. Um, let me see. There's a handful that I can put, put together that would be um, interesting and useful in this context. Um, so, all right. So there's, there's a couple of core characteristics of the notion of finance in general. Um, and I think it's actually interesting to, to drill down on that because um, money isn't actually anywhere near as obvious or easy as it's uh, you know, as people kind of think because it's, we're so, so around it all the time and we think okay well money is a is an object it used to be in fact a physical object like a coin or a piece of paper that I get for doing stuff and I give to people to have them give do do stuff for me right so okay it's prosaic it's simple it's well understood um, but what's really interesting to think about it is that is that uh, you know, money represents the, the ability of human beings to abstract. Uh, it represents the ability to take something which is a sign of something um, and replace it for the thing itself. Right? So instead of having a, an apple, what I can do is I can have, um, I don't know what apples cost these days, $2. And um, that, that those $2 represents, in abstraction, the potential for me to get an apple uh, if and when I want it. Um, and of course, it's extraordinarily powerful, which is what, what finance is about. But the problem is, is that you've now got this interesting gap. You've got the gap between the thing itself, the value, and the indicator, the sign of the value. And what happens is that it's not long before somebody realizes that you can actually make this show up like crazy without having any meaningful impact on this. And that is what I would just characterize financial services as being. Uh, the insight that um, if you're attempting to optimize for money, uh, completely regardless of the degree to which the money is related at all to an optimization of value. And I should point out, by the way, that there's a, uh, a meaningful amount of tomfoolery in economics, where economics tells a story that there is something uh, kind of irrevocable about uh, money and value, that they are directly and always connected. And I think it's important to recognize that that's not the case, that they can be. And so this is why money is useful. Um, very useful, but it, they also can be separated. Uh, and of course, we see this, for example, just the simple notion of debasing a currency. If I can counterfeit a bunch of money, I have generated lots and lots and lots of the sign, uh, but I haven't generated the value. And I think in many ways, what ends up happening is that financial services ends up showing a whole lot, showing up a whole lot like counterfeiting. You know, they produce lots and lots of things that generate lots of valid signs, lots of money, uh, but in fact, little or no value. Um, in spite of the, the protestations of the economic profession. Now, another piece, and, I, and I'm trying to, to go two pieces and they shift to blockchain just to create the kind of uh, parallax effect, is that another thing that happens with money is that money is an allocation of the kinds of choice making that we're investing in in our economy. And so which is to say that every dollar you have is in many ways a, a vote in what the economy does. So if I really, really want to have um, nothing but red Ferraris and you really want to have nothing but, say, uh, corn, uh, and I have all the money, then the economy is going to produce red Ferraris and not corn. Um, and so what ends up happening is, is that the way that finance allocates money 
also shows up as a way that our society allocates choice making, at least in the economic domain. And different, there's no specific reason to believe that the people who are most capable of playing the game of finance are also the most capable of making good choices in what the economy should be producing. In fact, there's very good reason to believe that's not the case. Now, shifting over to blockchain, um, think about what, what those two characteristics that I just articulated show up in blockchain. And then, we'll, and then we'll kind of move to the third, which is, I think, the most important. Um, on the one hand, because blockchain is the kind of thing that actually doesn't make a whole lot of sense to people who haven't done things like study cryptography um, or have a deep, deep sense of technology and technology trends, the people who showed up as being the earliest winners in the blockchain space are a different population than the people who have been winning the finance game for the last 80 years. So now, of course, the finance folks are scrambling like crazy to figure out how to reestablish their dominance uh, in the blockchain space. But at least right now, even though blockchain is unfortunately rather characterized by concentrated wealth, it's also characterized by concentrated wealth in the hands of a different set of choice makers who at least so far, have a higher degree of capacity to perceive real problems and compose real solutions. Um, to put it uh, a little bit prejudicially, uh, these are the engineers from the movie Apollo 13 who know how to solve problems. Um, and that's actually a much better place to put your choice making than in the hands of people who have optimized for manipulating um, and counterfeiting money. And then secondarily, there's a big difference between money as we currently understand it and the, the way that the blockchain shows up uh, that I actually remember thinking way back when it was first starting. There was a quote that I read about from a Roman emperor who was telling his son uh, why it was okay for the emperor to take taxes from the, uh, like the, the, the people who did uh, sanitation, sewage. And he said, gold hath no smell, meaning there's no traceability to it. There's not any real direct connection between uh, fiat currency and records. Um, and of course, what that does is it creates a great niche for, for exploiting that fact, right? So if person A shows up with a million dollars in their pocket and person B shows up with $100,000 in their pocket, um, person A gets much more power in the economy than person B, in spite of the fact that person A may be, for example, a criminal, right? Somebody who stole that money. You don't really know, it has no smell, it has no ability to trace. Um, whereas blockchain, in fact, is all about uh, durable records. You know, it is in fact uh, the whole point is that it is a ledger, a decentralized ledger that is um, as resilient as we can currently conceive against uh, modifications of the records themselves. And this, I think, is both true at a technical level and at an ethos level. But there's something about the ethos of the blockchain community that that thinks about keeping good records as being important. Now, now by the way, to be sure, uh, a large number of folks in the blockchain community also very, very much want to be off. Uh, in particular, the government's radar. Um, but I think that's actually subsidiary to the underlying foundation of the technology, that it actually does enable us to have more, um, I think uh, Dan Jeffries actually wrote a really wonderful blog post about the, the blockchain as being the emergence of the, the third major new emergence of the kind of accounting, which he calls triple ledger accounting. Uh, and that's actually worth the deeply, deeply looking into. So, so then you get to um, the, the last piece, which is, frankly, I think right now still very esoteric, but I think worth trying to, to scratch the surface on, which has to do with the way that um, the blockchain enables us to use money 
as a variable in a software system as code. And what that does is allow us to actually be thoughtful about designing motivational and by the way, game theoretic choice making infrastructure so as to solve this problem that we talked about earlier, uh, the problem of how do you actually move high variable complex systems from one basin of attraction into another basin of attraction. And, and, and we can actually do this right now with a very simple example, which is Bitcoin itself, right? As the first major instantiation of blockchain, um, Bitcoin was able to solve a problem that up until that point had been completely unsolved. So you can imagine, for example, let's say PayPal. PayPal was a pretty successful company. Um, and it had, I mean, if you look at the roster of folks who are associated with PayPal, it may, there may not be a better pedigree. Um, yet in terms of the scope of what PayPal endeavored to do, which in their case was to create uh, a new form of money or digital money, um, it still has not yet done anything other than what you can consider to be failed. Right? So PayPal had some of the best people civilization could muster um, at a pretty good timing and failed. Uh, whereas as Bitcoin, more or less designed by, say, three or four people in its originary state, um, seems to have succeeded. Right? There is actually uh, an accelerating community of people who are using this thing and, and constantly solving problems and fixing it and building it out. And the way they did that was by understanding that they were actually dealing with a complex system. And so they designed a, a technical architecture that had a motivational infrastructure so that individuals coming from wherever they came from would look at it choose as individuals to make choices that were in their best interests, but because of the way the system was designed, those individual local choices would always aggregate to something that is in the global interests of the system itself. Um, and I mean, we can double click on that and try to get some more detail, but I think now's a good time to pause. But the point is that that's an example of, of, of how this new kind of fiscal software I think some folks in the Bay are calling it socio-technical platforms actually enables us to crack the code on designing complex systems to actually be able to move things out of basins of attraction into hopefully higher levels of, of overall capacity. Right. So with blockchain, two of the really interesting things are the uh, uncorruptible or harder to corrupt ledger but then also the crypto economics and those are two different things. And the crypto economics mm -hmm. is the ability to have a more um, nuanced and complex incentive structure because rather than just dollars uh, that are going to be associated kind of the same across the whole market as a decentralized incentive, you can have different types of tokens for different types of things and et cetera. So, if we relate this back to say some of the issues we were looking at with the financial incentive that uh, you know went down the game theoretic hill that you were talking about that started with do good things and be profitable to uh, be profitable and maybe do good things to get away with it. <clears throat> How could uh, this type of crypto economic dynamic play out in say pharma? or in hospitals, or in citizen right. science, or anything like that in a way that could actually change the motivational dynamics that would lead to better healthcare. Right, so as, as you know, there was an announcement, I think today, it may have been yesterday, um, where some hospitals are proposing that they may begin the process of endeavoring to create an, an alternative uh, scientific and economic model for producing pharmaceuticals. Uh, and this is a response to the fact that pharmaceuticals are, uh, well, 
too expensive. Um, so, and I think actually the, the technology, the blockchain technology and the concept of a decentralized autonomous organization is in fact exactly the right solution to this problem. Uh, and in fact, if I could figure out a way to message this to the hospitals are doing it, this would maybe be the best thing they could possibly do. So first let me shift a little bit to the software domain and then come back to the pharma domain because I, I know the software domain better, but it's, I think it's a direct mapping. So one of the things, for example, that you, you'll see in um, one of the blockchain core blockchain infrastructure plays called Ethereum um, is that in Ethereum, what, what they've actually created is their own private software language called Solidity. Uh, it's kind of like JavaScript or C or C++, meaning it's a, it's a language that software guys can write in, and what they write will show up as um, something that the Ethereum system knows how to understand and can do things with. Now, all code written in Ethereum um, is in some sense intrinsically open source, meaning that if I write a very powerful object in Ethereum, uh, you can actually write something which calls that object for free. It's just there. Now, of course, I can make it not for free, but the point is that it's in the system. So what ends up happening is you get this process where as more and more core infrastructure is built and made available, the next layer of innovators don't need to reinvent the wheel. They don't need to rebuild that core infrastructure to get to work on top of that core infrastructure. Um, in fact, one of the primary problems is finding the tools that you need out of this giant, in, in, increasingly large pool of tools to be able to solve the problem you want to solve. But this is very ramifying, right? The idea of standing on the shoulders of giants begins to happen very quickly when it's all sitting there as software, all sitting in a blockchain registry, which means that all the records are well kept and the path of who did what is actually fully traceable. So, you know, I, I, who did this? Well, I could just find it. It's just literally, literally living there in the blockchain because that's what the blockchain does. Um, in the case of Ethereum, you can actually write contracts in software, like pieces of software that, that process if-then statements that can trade money back and forth. So Daniel can write a piece of code. He can submit that code up to Ethereum and says, if you want to access that code, here's the API call to make that will send me a very small amount of ETH, and in exchange, you can use the code. And they're actually building an internal economy that incentivizes software developers to be able to fully build the most viable and most shareable software that are a benefit to the entire community. Um, and be fully incentivized and motivated and rewarded for so doing, which of course should create a massive shift in the velocity of how software is developed. Now, of course, you could do exactly the same thing in the category of pharma. Um, you can create a mechanism whereby, for example, uh, data, all the data lives in a shared and appropriately permissioned open database that has Ethereum contracts giving permission to access that data, where um, experiments and all the results of experiments, even in medias rest, like you don't have to actually go through an entire experimental protocol, publish it, scrub it so it looks good, and then hopefully get into a journal. You can actually just have that be in an open environment because the people who are doing the work have an incentive that is not tied to, for example, publish or perish, or have an incentive that is not tied to creating patents, but they have an incentive to moving forward the state of the art in science. Uh, and you can create um, neat, neat little Ethereum contracts that actually reward people for, um, say, very high quality experimental design. Just submit a high quality framework and boom, bam, be rewarded for it. And everybody who uses that framework, you get paid for this open source framework that you've generated. Um, and of course, the same thing happens for data. You know, if I come in and I'm saying, hey, well, I can't really contribute meaningfully to the science. I can't contribute meaningfully to the software, but I can engage in experimental protocols. I'm willing to submit myself and put my data into this large pool. Um, and maybe what I do is I, let's just say I sign up for a sleep study. 
And so I, uh, I wear a, a or a ring and I have a, an app and it's tracking my sleep. And I just every day submit uh, some additional data. And the key is that my data gets put into this shared database and all the variables associated with my data are now available for other people to research. And I'm also in a pool. So I get a message, Bling! Hey, would you like to participate in this particular sleep study for this particular practice? Here's the uh, reward. And we've already researched your data to indicate that you already qualify for our protocol. And the protocol literally in software has the ability to make a ping out to the database to identify particular individuals and make the offer on its own. It's kind of like a lot of the thinking that's going on in the IoT space, Internet of Things space, happening in the Internet of Wellness space. Um, and what ends up happening then is you have a, uh, an increasingly autocatalytic um, and increasingly um, architecture-based, meaning that most of the hard work has already been built as a platform that people can just access and resource, and all the innovation work is actually being done at the surface of the sphere. And as we know, the volume of the sphere increases to the cube, right? So you actually got massive return on the investments being done at the outside. So instead of having lots and lots of little spheres that are all sort of communicating with each other over the market, everything's happening on the inside uh, of that sphere, uh, oh, sorry, all the values happening inside of the sphere and it's being shared as a commons resource out into the broader population. Um, that's the sort of thing that I think is frankly well within the scope of doability now. I mean, it would take meaningful effort, but if you're looking at the size of the amount of money that's currently being frankly wasted in uh, the interface between hospitals and pharma, um, you know, on the order of say, God, it probably wouldn't even be that much. You know, the order of hundreds of millions of dollars a year would be vastly more than enough to completely resource the infrastructure that I'm talking about. And almost immediately, frankly, you'd get some returns. And in three or four years, you could probably be replacing um, 20 or 30% of what's going on in pharma. And in seven years, what will end up happening actually is that you'll be shifting, you'll basically be decoupling financial services from the science of medicine. And so what will end up happening is that the scientists will be radically liberated to focus on what they do. And by the way, the engineers and technologists too, because there's obviously a lot of building of instruments and tech that's <laughs> fundamentally required to do this. But the resource flow will no longer be gated by what, what effectively is a gigantic financial services business sitting on top of what should in fact be a science and technology project. So it sounds like the key thing that you shared in there is the increase in sharing and transparency and thus collaboration and thus collective intelligence and collective capacity where the current incentive structure incentivizes owning and hoarding IP and making sure nobody else uses the things that you discovered um, because you're going to make your money on patents and uh, not sharing what you're learning until it's published because the whole thing is published. Mm -hmm. So that really what you're talking about is the ability to change the information ecology, the incentives that change the information ecology from ones that incentivize hoarding information and making it hard for other people to use. They have to pay for license and even disinforming to one that maximizes informing, sharing, and collaboration. Yeah, so, and I think there's actually two key pieces to that. The first we talked about a little bit, which is the ability to keep records, um, or as our friend Michael Bassler talks about it, the ability to actually deliver justice, uh, which he defines as um, making sure that the loops are closed, that value created needs to be value returned, 
and that externalities need to be returned to the creators of externalities, right? And if you have injustice, if you have bad records in a system, if you don't have the ability to determine who created how much value and who created how much externality and thereby return it, then you get a system that, that drifts quite rapidly um, and where a lot of strategies are about um, stealing credit and um, avoiding responsibility. Um, so that's one piece. Right? So one piece is just radically increasing the quality of the records that are being kept and therefore closing more and more loops, which is say creating more and more justice. Uh, and then the other side of the equation actually has to go to stuff like... Um, as soon as you say more justice, you also mean more incentive to actually do the right things rather than the wrong things. Yeah, and intrinsically. It's just very simply. It's not, it's not that people have to become um, sort of more uh, uh, pro bono. Uh, it's just that the good things they do will be noticed and rewarded and the bad things they do will be noticed and punished done, right? It's pretty simple. Like that's straightforward. As long as you can provide that framework where people have clean boundaries and good choices are rewarded and bad choices are punished, they will begin to move in that direction and they'll, and they'll begin to move in that direction en masse. Um, and then the other has to do with the notion of the theory of the firm. Uh, and and wait, the, before you oh, go, go ahead. Theory go ahead. of the firm. <clears throat> so you and I've had the benefit of having Michael Vassar spend a lot of time explaining uh, this model to us. I think a lot of people think that what that markets do what you just said, that we live within capitalism, capitalism is based on market theory, and that markets are supposed to uh, reward the things that are good and not reward the things that are bad, and therefore you get a natural evolutionary dynamics of good stuff, and it's kind of like how evolution itself works. Sure. Well, why is that not true? So let's just assume that someone's listening to this thinking that markets already do that. Why is that not currently the case? Well, I think a big part of it has to do with this, this, this notion that gold has no smell, meaning that, um, again, you know, person A shows up in the, in the market with uh, 10 apples and person B shows up in the market with five apples. Um, the fact that person A stole those apples from person B is something the market in, may have no capacity to perceive at all. And in fact, we don't even think about that as a market transaction. That's called justice. That's what happens. And so what we say is, okay, well, person B then needs to find some way to sue or otherwise rebalance the underlying infrastructure. So what we, what we think about then is that the market is consisting of a whole bunch of little circles that are communicating with each other through um, transactions. And it doesn't actually have any information outside of that information flow. So it has an inability to perceive all the different ways that somebody might actually falsify the stuff that the market actually needs to be able to make good choices. Uh, meaning that uh, if you think about like the game, like the startup with goo, do the right thing and it slides all the way down. If everybody who's playing the market game is self-enforcing to do the right thing, uh, you know, social norms really, really work. And anybody who plays in anything but the most uh, virtuous way is selected against through the, through the, through the normative channel, uh, then the markets will actually tend to do a pretty good job. Um, well, there's, there's more to it than that, and there's a whole bunch of other stuff to think about, that, but that's one that we can focus on right here. And, uh, but that's, since markets actually have very little ability to perceive that kind of a thing, in fact, they outsource that to other areas, social norms, laws, et cetera, um, that's the channel you game. Right? You game that channel, and so you show up as a really great market player. You're a bank. You've got a giant fucking building with uh, marble columns and a, actually completely covered in marble and impressive people wearing fancy suits that all signal certain things that the market can perceive, um, but 
you know, the gap between signal and the thing being signified is something the market has effectively no capacity to perceive at all. Um, and that then becomes the game. Uh, when you move more and more and more power and choice making into the market, um, you end up basically creating a niche for gaming what the market can't perceive and simulating what the market perceives as being a good answer. Um, and, then, and then you're on that slide, right? Do what is most profitable, highest money for money return. The market sees that as positive signal and you're, you know, you're, you're riding the sleigh down the, down the hill. Is there more on that? I'm sure that, I mean, there's lots more. Do you want to keep exploring that space? No, I, th I think it's good. I think um, it's important for, I, th I think most people today have some sense of how much greenwashing and various forms of we are saying we're doing a good thing as part of the marketing budget more than the actual product budget of really doing a good thing um, proliferates. And I don't think most people think the amount of money that's been made in derivatives as a market corresponds to uh, real goods and services that benefit the lives of most people. Right. Um, but I mean, it's, we can, we can actually say this extremely simply. Um, if people who are in control of the money supply printed all the money and gave it to themselves, the market would have absolutely no idea and no way of responding to that fact. Right. I mean, it's, it's like, it's like the brain and heroin. Uh, by itself, the way the brain responds to <clears throat> simulated neurotransmitters, uh, it has a really hard time being able to tell the difference internally. Um, and the only way you can respond to the notion of mass counterfeiting of money is through a completely different channel, not known as the market. Um, now, of course, you can try to invent ways to simulate that. Okay, well, all right, fine. what we'll do is we'll create agencies that we're calling anti-counterfeit agencies that we will pay to enforce the fidelity. Okay, cool. Now what we're doing is we're trying to create market mechanisms to instantiate other kinds of social functions. And that's a second order solution. We should be very mindful that it's second order, not first order. It actually requires us to be thinking about this different modality and then using market mechanisms to do it. But you end up in, then is a regression. And then of course you have this scenario where the lobbyists that are making the laws are getting paid for by somebody. And that means they're getting paid for by the groups that have enough money to pay for them that then work on creating legislation in their own interest and the campaign budgets for the politicians and the et cetera, et cetera. Right. And, th and this can, gets back to that notion of justice, injustice, and record keeping that, you know, if you actually happen to have, well, 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 there's a limit to this, but if you happen to have something that which does really, really good record keeping and you have really high quality ability to measure who's doing what to whom and what, what are the various interests of everything else, then the ability for uh, particularly a decentralized system to make good choices, a marketing system, is relatively high. The, the less high quality your record keeping, the less high quality your ability to perceive reality and have a history, a, a real history of what's going on, the less effective uh, those kinds of mechanisms are going to be. Um, and then, of course, there's the actual limit, which that's, is... That's where blockchain is actually valuable. And that's where, where and why blockchain is a very interesting solution. Um, and then the other piece is just the, the limits of, of understanding meaning that past a certain amount of information velocity, you just get lost in the, in the fire hose. No matter how accurate your records are, um, you know, I can, let's assume there's a 100% chance that with an adequate amount of investigation, you'd be able to know that I just cheated you. Um, but that so much craziness is going on constantly that I'm also quite able to, to make a, a bet that I can cheat you in the likelihood that you're going to be able to traverse the information uh, flow 
within the time that it's worth to you and with the attention that you have to close the loop on me, um, you know, that bet's going to keep being made. So what ended up happening is we basically invert it into the uh, defraud equivalent of high-speed high trading, which may in fact just be defraud. may not be a, the equivalent. High-speed trading may just be fraud. Um, but the point is that I can defraud you so quickly and it's such a low cost that you can't actually close the loop. And therefore, again, I found another solution to the problem. Um, but let's get back really quickly to the notion of coast because I think it's actually quite interesting in the, in the concept of thinking about what this, how this shows up in, pl in places like medicine and pharma. So um, Coase, who was a, a, an economist at University of Chicago, where, where things like markets make good choices was, was the theology, um, was wondering, well, okay, if, if, if individual economic actors make good choices, um, in fact, make better choices than centralized entities do, then why the fuck do we have companies? What's going on here? Why do these things show up? And of course, he said, oh, the reason for that is because there's another thing going on called transaction costs. Um, and that market transactions have, have higher transaction costs than the transaction costs that sit inside some kind of uh, pre-associated envelope. Right? So if, if you and I agree that um, we're going to split the returns on our activities 50-50, um, so we don't have to make any more negotiations past that first negotiation, now we're a partnership and we can now both just sort of throw into making that thing work oh, very quickly. We don't have to rethink about it. We just are very creative at the edge. Whereas if every single time either one of us does something, we're constantly having to renegotiate some kind of transaction, the cost of negotiation, and by the way, the cost of monitoring and the cost of, of, of interpreting and enforcing goes through the roof. Um, so what ends up happening is uh, the market the, uh, collapses into a series of firms that are defined by a boundary where on the inside of the boundary, you've got a whole bunch of agreements that solve the transaction cost problem and allow people to coordinate in a very um, high velocity, low cost way. And then those firms then do the market transactions back and forth between each other. Um, now, <coughs> that obviously works. It built the 20th century and even earlier, but it, it runs into, into boundary condition problems um, where, for example, information inside one of these envelopes can't easily translate and connect to the information outside one of these envelopes. So, for example, let's say you had um, Apple and Google, and inside Apple, there were three uh, engineers who had developed something really interesting and important. And inside Google, there were three engineers who developed something really interesting and important. And in both cases, the missing piece was the opposite in innovation, where if they're able to connect those dots, something a hundred times more powerful would emerge. But because they're inside those envelopes, not only is there no obvious way to make that connection happen, it's in fact actively inhibited, in fact, possibly even illegal for them to cross those boundaries. Um, and this is sort of the point. Uh, in, in, the, in the blockchain environment, and we may be in a circumstance where through automation of, of contracts, smart contracts, say for an Ethereum, um, we can radically reduce transaction costs, like maybe a factor of a thousand. And as a consequence, collapse most of the economic utility associated with large scale and long enduring firms, and therefore get a whole lot more of the surface area of this innovation exposed to a broader shareable environment. Um, and, and by the way, also do it in a way that enables, as you said earlier, sharing to make sense, meaning um, on the one hand, record keeping is better. So the innovators themselves are able to have high confidence that the, their value will actually loop back and connect. Um, and on the other hand, you have ways of wiring in incentive structures that can do things like actually consider the commons as a commons 
and build into code rather than build into, say, norms or law, ways of enforcing the commons against strategies of the commons and things like that. So <clears throat> there's a few companies that are working on trying to make some ride-sharing program like Uber on a blockchain so that you decentralize the central company, the Uber or the Lyft as a company, which is going to be extracting a lot of profit from the system, driving the price of the transport up for everybody or the amount that the drivers can be paid down. And so if you were to decentralize that, you'd have a scenario where it would be more value to everyone with less central extraction. Then you say, well, we still have to be able to pay for the thing. Well, that's where an ICO or something comes in that you can pay for it without needing a thousand X return on an, an initial venture capital financial service type thing. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so that could be done with pharma. Obviously there's a lot of science to do to develop a new drug and or develop a new surgery or develop a new diagnostic procedure. There's like real cost that's involved, but the real cost that's involved um, doesn't end up equaling the total cost of the thing afterwards because of all of the profit that that central company has to make and the financial services that are involved. Well, it's, I mean, you can actually, the economics are pretty easy. Um, retail is carrying the full burden. I mean, at the end of the day, the consumer is carrying the entire burden of the entire supply chain, including investors. Um, and so to the degree to which you can, you can empower the consumer to create the capital structure that generates the innovation they're ultimately consuming, Correct. either they show up as the investor, in which case they just get the return of their own consumption or prices go down. Um, either one is sort of uh, equivalent and, and probably in between because some consumers will not have been capital providers. Um, and so right now, for example, in, in the one we were talking about, hospitals carry most of the retail cost of providing medical care. Um, and so they already have plenty of money. I mean, they're pouring lots of dough into pharma. So this just becomes a way for them to reduce the amount of money they're putting into something they're already spending. They can just basically, it shows up as spending less money more effectively, which if anything, any of the stories that we tell about capitalism are even vaguely true, then they should be doing that. If you can spend less money to be more effective, that is what you should do. Now, there are a heap of conditions that we don't yet have good drugs developed for because there is no profitable way to develop them. The cost that it's going to take, because there's either not enough people that have that disease or because rather than treating a symptom forever, we'd be curing something and we just can't charge enough for a one-time treatment to make back the the billion or half a billion it costs to go through phase three clinical trials in the current landscape, and right. et cetera. So if we, bring the, if we bring the cost of actually being able to produce it down, we also open up a now profitable market to work on discovery of heaps of solutions that currently just don't get researched. Sure. Well, I think the, it, it goes down to the notion of, uh, oh, cool. Can I, I'm going to pivot this a little bit. Yep. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to shift the language um, and shift it from scarcity to abundance. And in abundance, I actually want to talk about two things. So the first is what we've been largely talking about, which is what is the ec economics of abundance? Um, I think it's a very nice conceptual model to say that almost all I mean, to, almost to the, to the limit of all, of the thinking about economics that has been done thus far has been scarcity economics. And we're right now in the process of the obsolescence of that entire approach, which I'm going to get to in a second. Um, but this begs the question of, okay, well, what does abundance economics look like? Uh, which has to do with things like, okay, well, how do I appropriately incentivize um, innovative people to create solutions to gigantic problems, but where scarcity and therefore uh, 
profit based upon scarcity is not available as the right solution. And this is what you just, as categorically what you're just articulating. And specifically when you make money or incentive of any kind solving a problem, the perverse incentive there, the scarcity based incentive can be that you're now invested in that problem ongoing so that you manage it, right? The military industrial complex, the sector right. complex, as opposed to how do we actually then get to the abundant side of make money just obsoleting the problem rather than ongoingly managing it. Yeah. In fact, you can even make it like how having the highest leverage on increasing collective well-being yes. would be the thing that you're looking to accomplish. Um, and which, of course, if you would imagine uh, taking the most innovative people and just fully empowering them to focus on that, that problem, that, that question, um, you can, can you imagine how much more effective we would be? Um, I can't even uh, probably a hundred times more effective almost immediately, like within weeks, actually, of, of, if you could just pivot that direction. Um, so in that context, uh, I'm gonna, I want to explore a little bit a branch to the right, uh, and maybe we can come back to this branch here if we'd like, which has to do with the other side of abundance. Um, and this is something that I was just talking about with some folks yesterday, so it's top of mind. Uh, and that has to do with everybody being obsolete, or most people being obsolete. And what I mean by that is absolutely not that people are obsolete. Obviously not. Um, what I mean is that the stuff that people have been doing to keep themselves busy goes away. Um, and what's interesting about that is that because of a lot of the characteristics of how we've gone about meeting our needs and how we've been trained to be valuable and useful in game A, um, we actually quite addicted to being busy, um, which is the problem. All right. That's, that's actually the issue of abundance. Um, so this is why, for example, a universal basic income is simultaneously a good idea and a terrible idea. Um, on the good idea front, at least it makes sure that people don't starve to death before we figure out a way to do something differently. Uh, and that's useful. Um, on the bad idea front, uh, a whole bunch of people addicted to being busy who can no longer be busy uh, is in fact a, a moral, ethical, and ultimately actually political and physical disaster. And so this actually ends up being one of the core problems that needs to be addressed and thought through and experimented with and then delivered on, which is how do we rather rapidly actually train people to kick their addiction to being busy and relearn the capacity to actually engage with the world and with life authentically and without any necessity of being busy at all. That, that's, it seems like an odd thing to be like an emergency crisis, but I believe actually that's the emergency crisis. Um, and it'll turn out that the, the, one of the biggest economic uh, markets in the, in the era of technological unemployment is going to be uh, helping people relearn how to meet their needs and be fulfilled without being busy. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So you're bringing up the topic of uh, technological automation, the emerging technological automation with uh, robotics, with AI, et cetera, um, obsoleting a huge amount of jobs and saying people, you know, are currently addicted to being busy and other ways that people have said that and could identify with it is uh, people have their identities wrapped up in what they do to make money. 
um, and that a lot of fathers have their identity wrapped up in being a provider in a particular way in the particular craft that they came from or whatever. <clears throat> um, and uh, now that we're going to relate this back to, you were saying that game A optimized people for filling a fairly narrow niche and didn't really care about the rest of their well-being, and that narrow niche was well-filled by them staying busy doing that thing. Mm -hmm. And so then they, of course, have not learned how to, and that education was coupled to that, so education worked on making them good at identifying with being that narrow niche fulfiller, right? Mm -hmm. I am a lawyer, I'm a doctor, I am a marketer, I'm a whatever, right? And so in as the macro economy shifts, and economy and education are, are bound together in this way because the economy... Uh, the, is the environment that people are having to be prepared for by the educational system. So if we get something like universal basic income or a commonwealth uh, system based on access or something like that, based on a way of having technological automation, not just create a total failed capitalist state, this obviously requires a totally new type of education. Mm -hmm. And you're saying, how do we have people not get, you know, heal their addiction to being busy. So this is really now, again, where we're talking about the intersection of personal development, the thing we call education, vocational development, uh, purpose, medicine, right? Which is how do we create whole healthy beings? And you mentioned the term sovereignty, which is core. So I, if, if you would, you were the first person that taught me about the history of the U S education system hmm. and uh, how <clears throat> it specifically evolved to make beings that were well-designed for the industrial revolution era. And um, I think that's a valuable piece of history here, if you don't mind sharing it, and then go into from that, what would the future of education look like that would address this topic that you're bringing up and also the future of really supporting the types of whole human process needed. So education and well-being support and sovereignty support. Okay, great. So if, if I lose track, just let, remind me, there's a third piece to this move. So um, I'm going to just start out with the, the first, which, um, well, okay. So back in the 19th century, when we were trying to really be, start to formalize uh, the approach that we were going to be engaging in education, um, there were, well, may I back up? There are, in fact, many, many ways to do education. That's the first. There's actually many ways. Um, when America was beginning to look closely at how we were going to do it, there were at least two major models that existed that had people who thought they were good ideas and had been around for a while and had been very effective. There are actually many more, but there were at least two that were under consideration. Um, one, um, which is ultimately the one that we actually adopted, was the German model. Um, and the characteristics of this model are the ones that we Americans at least are all familiar with, which is the, the notion that there is a, uh, a subject matter area, say math. Uh, there is a person who is the designated authoritative expert known as the teacher or the professor. Uh, their job is to convey the lessons, the content. Uh, the, everybody else is in the role of being a receiver of information, the student, whose job is to learn that information. And then the, the teacher also has the job of demonstrating information transfer or competency in the subject matter by creating various forms of tests, implementing those tests, and then iterating on that process, right? So it's all, it's closed. And so what ends up happening is then a student will have some number of teachers 
um, all more or less identical in terms of that architecture, uh, differentiated only by the content, the subject matter that they're, that they're conveying. Um, and then at the output of that, you will have a, a set of evaluations, which should say how well you did on the tests, indicating how uh, capable you are in the underlying subject matter. Um, and, and notably what this ends up doing is this creates a, uh, a, a giant question mark, well, it creates a whole bunch of effects, but one of the effects it has is a, a giant question mark about the degree to which a particular score matters because who knows how good the underlying teacher or professor was at A, teaching, or B, testing. Um, and so I, maybe I have an A from uh, small college um, small college X, and I've got a C from super famous university Y. Uh, it may very well be that my C is in some sense worth more than my, than my A because the professor in C was better, had more to tell, more insight, and te had tested harder. So being average in that domain is maybe much, much better than being quote-unquote exemplary in another domain. This is a, a, you know, a known issue in the German model. Um, there are lots of other known issues, but then the other model that existed at the same time and exists to this day is the Oxford-Cambridge model of England, uh, which operates very differently. Uh, and in that environment, first, the student is principally responsible for, in fact, um, consuming information. Right. So the student uh, does a lot of reading um, and maybe do interviewing um, and, and learning the subject matter. They then have a tutor who has domain expertise, who understands the subject matter um, and interacts with the student to help the student puzzle through certain problems, points them in different directions, maybe helps them think more clearly about where they're getting uh, turned around. Um, but, the, but the tutor is not responsible for conveying the information per se. That's the student's job. And the tutor is not responsible for evaluating the quality of the student's work. That's a completely separate function where you actually have an impaneled group who crafts generalized tests that are given to everybody in a particular subject matter. Um, many different impaneled groups tend to be responsible for it. Um, and then what ends up happening is that if I have a, you know, a, an A, or the equivalent of an A in math across the entire set of universities that participate in the Oxford-Cambridge model, then I should be uh, at A standard no matter which university I went to. So a very, very good university might have more people who show up at A, um, but if I go to a you know, small podunk college and I still have an A, then I'm uh, considered to be a peer to them in capability. Um, now, the reason why this is interesting, by the way, is just to do a third, which is the guild model. Uh, in the guild model, you actually have a, even uh, a different approach, and this is because in the guild model, you're largely trying to convey things that actually can't be well done through information transfer. Uh, they're more associated with complex skills practices, uh, you know, classically things like, say, uh, carpentry um, or uh, um, medicine. And it's actually pretty guildy, where the apprentice associates with somebody who is quite skilled in the art. The, the person who's skilled in the art, the master, uh, gives them tasks that are designed to be at their level of capability, but by virtue of doing them, they increase their level of capability, and the master basically just puts them on a path of more and more and more complex tasks, and the individual student, just by doing stuff, and every once in a while, interventions and hints and notes and provocations, builds their underlying capacity until they themselves have enough capacity to leave and go off and take a whole program. Um, and by the way, there are many, many other approaches. And so, the, so that, that's, that's the history. The history is that we as, as Americans locked into a particular model and then have, uh, using our earlier language, the basin of attraction now is completely locked in, meaning that I actually remember very clearly when I was in first grade, 
the teacher was telling us that we had to be, work really hard on this particular piece because I tell you what, second grade is no joke. Um, much harder, and you've got to kind of get. If you can't, if you want to do well in second grade, you've got to do well now. And of course, it was just a handoff. If you want to do well in fifth grade, you got to you know get your shit together in fourth grade. If you want to go all the way up until finally, well, why am I doing this at all? Well, if you want to get a good job, right? And the handoff from the education vertical to the work vertical. Um, now, a couple of things come out. Now, one, that entire model was already linked to the notion of getting a job or getting a good job or being qualified for a particular job. And remember, this is true just through high school and even vocational school, uh, with college being added on after World War II. Um, and as the economy moved more and more into a domain where information processing capability and credentialization became um, minimum requirements for having, quote unquote, a good job in the economy. Um, and so it's, it's reasonably good at conveying, uh, what is it called in France? Is it rote, I think? It's really good for conveying rote information. Right? People who process through that model will end up doing a pretty good job at uh, crank turning. Give me an input um, where I've been, I've actually learned a particular process to process that input, and I'll give you with pretty high predictability a predictable output, which maps pretty closely to industrial civilization. Right? So the idea was the education system and the economic system of that era <clears throat> were, were unsurprisingly similar to each other. So if I, if I had an early industrial revolution with, um, you know, the types of production lines where I just needed people to be able to do a certain job that needed to be fully fungible, I could remove someone from that job and put someone else in, and I needed X number of people on the assembly line to do that thing. And then if they were off the assembly line and they were a bookkeeper, I needed to know, okay, this person can do this function called bookkeeping so I could make an org chart and make a firm. Then in that environment, we're basically using people like we're making robots to do now, using them for a very specific defined process function. So then the goal is make them a good robot. Yeah, and I think this is, this is probably the best way of grasping it. It's in, in any kind of thing that you're doing that has similar characteristics over and over again, you're always learning everything about it. Your, your, your learning system doesn't know what it's learning. So it's just drag, grabbing patterns and learning how to adapt to those patterns. So you know, if you're going to kindergarten all the way up to, let's just, let's just make it high school, um, you're exposed to a wide variety of different kinds of content. You're doing English, you're doing history, you're doing social studies. You're actually exposed to a wide variety of different kinds of personalities. But what is exactly the same every single time is this core architecture of broadcast authority and narrow focused receptive student and that's what you actually learn in this system is that model that's that's the key transfer it doesn't actually matter whether or not you take the branch to become a biologist or the branch to become a, a uh, an english teacher because everybody learned how to operate in that disciplinary mode of having somebody who's the boss who has the magical answers conveys the authoritative information that my job is to figure out how to parse what portions of that authoritative information I'm going to be tested on. <clears throat> and then when I'm tested, pattern recognize what is in fact the valid answer from the pattern, from the information that I've stored and give it back. And that may be, by the way, saying the right thing, you know, just not making the person angry, whatever it is, it's that power relationship that is actually being taught in that infrastructure. And that is precisely the power relationship that you're looking for in industrial civilization because it doesn't matter whether you're working on an assembly line, putting caps on bottles, or you're an accountant, or you're a lawyer. In every one of those domains, even though the information is different, the architecture of how the hierarchy operates is identical. 
that's I think is the key and uh, the key thing to think about. Um, and, and then I guess the point here is that the output of that is people who have in fact really rather dramatically lost their sovereignty, really rather dramatically lost their individual capacity to, for example, create their own identity willy-nilly as they wish, um, or to respond to life uh, without having to make use of somebody else's pre-engineered scripts. I don't know if you ever saw it. There's a paper Alfred North Whitehead wrote on the problem of hyperspecialization that was speaking to this model that was uh, meaningful to me. And he said, the, the kids that seem smarter, more talented, we push them into specialization younger. And then we push them further and further into specialization. So by the time they finish their PhD, it is on the most narrow subfield of molecular biology or string theory with it only a few other people in the world know. And so none of the people that have a lot of cognitive horsepower ever looking at the whole, which if the whole wants to not be disturbed, you would try and make it do that, right? You would make them very sharp gears inside the machine, but not something that was looking at designing, redesigning the machine as a whole. So then the people who are left to actually look at the whole and what's wrong with it and externality are people that didn't do that well in the system as a whole. And so now we're in a world where we have to actually redesign the entire system, the whole game. That requires a different set of thinking than how to optimize some tiny part of it. Yeah, and this is true in both directions, <clears throat> meaning that um, everybody has to actually shift. Um, although, I, I guess, to, to be sure, there is differential value to different people shifting different capacities. Um, you know, there's the, the more you can get people who have who've been selected for co high cognitive horsepower to have, for example, more awareness of the whole, uh, more, say, a broader scope of empathy or a better sense of how externalities actually work. Um, one, the more they'll be able to play together, they'll be able to collaborate with each other, which radically increases their capabilities. Uh, but then two, the less likely they are to use that cognitive horsepower for bad ends because uh, they'll just be aware of it. They'll, be noted, they'll, they'll notice it themselves and then they'll engineer around it. Okay. So now you're talking about that these people who were actually, uh, that the education system was actually optimizing for deferring to authority and mm -hmm. to uh, being part of an authoritarian structure. Even if you're an authority within it, you're also still subordinate to other authorities. That's the, the whole deal and that people lost their sovereignty. <clears throat> uh, and now we're saying if you want to take the people with high intellectual capacity and make them really sovereign, they need things like empathy and the ability to work with other people. Would you define sovereignty? And yeah, I think, I think that's something we've used quite a bit and we, we need to actually be pretty clear about what we mean. Um, because first, uh, if you happen to be doing this from a, uh, kind of a very old school American history, um, we, we don't mean the same thing I think that Jefferson meant. Um, and if you're sitting around kind of in the contemporary environment, we definitely don't mean the same thing that I think the free men movement means. Um, it's kind of a term of art, actually, but it's such a powerful concept that I, I think we want to get a good definition and get that definition out into the world. So the, the, the basic proposition um, is that sovereignty represents your capacity to be an effective agent in the world. Um, but of course, what, what, what does that mean? So if you think about what it means to be an agent in the world, um, it has to do with, on the one hand, your ability to have accurate perceptions of what's going on in the world, 
Right? If you're if you can't perceive what's happening, you can't make good choices. You can't respond very effectively. Um, and then second, your ability to make sense of those perceptions. You know, so if you're overwhelmed by too much input or you don't have the right frameworks to take the information that you see, uh, this is say for example the problem of uh, the tsunami back in the uh, in Phuket where people could see, they could visibly see that the sea had receded, but they couldn't make sense of what was going on. So they couldn't then make good choices. Um, and then, and then third is then the ability to take the ability to make sense of what's going on and then take a look at then what you could do, the kinds of actions you can take and connect those two together into making good choices, the choices that are most likely to simultaneously deliver on uh, the results that you desire um, and the least amount of negative consequences and the least amount of externalities with the least amount of effort. Uh, and then the last piece is, in fact, the actuation <clears throat> piece, which is, which is then the execution on those choices so that they actually do deliver the results you intend with the least amount of unintended consequences and with the least amount of effort. Um, and so that whole, that entire construct is what we're defining as sovereignty. And what's important is to actually recognize there's almost like a spherical geometry to this thing, meaning that if you're overbalanced in any one of these characteristics, that lack of balance uh, you know, you can think about like, it takes the sphere out of round. So you might actually have, say, like a, a, a wheel that's got a dent in it. So as it's rolling, it keeps flopping. Uh, this might be, for example, somebody who uh, lacks the ability to make sense of, let's make a very simple example, other people's facial expressions. Right? So I can see that your face is doing stuff, but I can't make sense of it. So now what ends up happening is that my capacity to take information from my environment, convert it into meaning and make good choices, it's got a big blind spot which is going to show up, for example, in me making weird choices around other people's behavior because I can't actually read their faces. That's kind of a simple example. Lots and lots of examples. Like, you know, obviously, if you can't hear, then I can't make choices based upon the sounds in my environment. Um, and you can do it on any of the dimensions. So the point is that there's actually a, a very interesting notion of, a, of, a, of the sphere as being the appropriate shape. And what you want to do is you want to take a look at somebody and make sure that they're in, in round, that their sphere is, is as, as round as it, as, it, as it can be. And then you can start thinking about how to expand that sphere. And this actually loops us back all the way to the beginning. Remember, we talked about how complex systems have all kinds of different dynamics that's feeding back on each other. If you pull one piece, it'll tend to get pulled back into what is the, the, the basin of attraction. The same thing is happening here with a, with a human being in their capacity. Um, you've got all these different elements that are very tightly wound into how you're able to show up in the world. And there's only so much I can do to increase, for example, your cognitive intellect if I don't also increase your ability to perceive the world or I don't also increase your ability to act in the world. Um, you know, one of the interesting things that happens to contemporary humans is that we have a massively increased individual capacity to perceive, you know, all this information flowing in from the information environment, but our ability to act is actually minuscule in comparison to our ability to perceive. You know, we can see that there are terrible things going on all over the world, but we can't do anything about it. So our response then is to feel preemptively defeated or preemptively cynical um, or various things. We've got a fantasy notion of what it would be to be powerful, all kinds of various uh, motives like that, which aren't in fact capacity increasing. Um, but then conversely, human beings as a species has an enormous actuation capacity. You know, we can blow shit up like crazy. Um, but our sense-making and choice-making capacity is rather minuscule in comparison to our collective actuation capacity. So we can talk about this fractally. Individual human beings, in fact, probably even at a lower level, individual human systems, individual human beings um, have this 
the sovereignty, which is which ideally is in some kind of you know well balanced, smooth round, uh, and then can be increased as an individual. Uh, and then individuals cluster into groups, and these different groups have the same dynamics. You, know, you can imagine, for example, when you have a, a brand new basketball team of five people who, maybe they're all relatively skilled players, but they never played together as a team. Their team sovereignty is all wacky uh, and can't actually get things done. But as that team practices and practices and starts to get real fluid with each other, it's perception, sense-making, choice-making, and actuation elements begin to flow through nicely, and then you actually have a sovereignty as a team that begins to increase. Um, and the same thing happens as you scale all the way up. Um, okay, that's a lot. Okay, so <laughs> I want to I restate the essential points really clearly to make sure everyone got them. So sovereignty made up of three things, and the reason you're saying a sphere is you're saying that these three things are the three axes that would make up a three-dimensional mm. shape like a sphere, so that they that means they're orthogonal to each other. They're, they actually represent the vector space of, of being a human, of sovereignty, and the, you said uh, sensory input, information processing of that sensory input to inform a choice, and then actually acting, actuator output, and that there's a closed loop because then you act in the world and you can in turn sense the effects of the action and then make sense of it and act again until so you have this closed loop. <clears throat> and that we have just words that we've used before and we use, you know, this is actually related to the mission statement of Neurohacker of sovereignty increasing this definition of sovereignty that we can think of the sensory part of it, the first part of it as related to sentience, right? The ability to actually have not just that information is coming in, but that it's landing in a being that's recognizing it and experiencing it. And that the second part, the ability to take all of that, the internal sensing, right? Our own feelings, our proprioception, our, our past awareness and learning, plus what's happening in the world around us from our eyes and ears and information and make sense of it is intelligence. And then agency is our ability to then act on that in the world, especially act in the presence of pressures that might make it hard to act, right? Increasing agency mm -hmm. capacity. Yeah. So the triplicate of sentience, intelligence, and agency makes up this sphere. Now, right. if someone has very high agency, meaning they're very motivated, they have a lot of resilience, but they're actually not making good sense of the world, they're going to make a lot of very powerful, very bad choices. Mm -hmm. If someone is actually sensing the world well and very intelligent, but has low agency, then they're going to have a lot of good ideas and be crippled to make them happen, right? We can mm -hmm. look at any of the combinations of these and say only all three ends up actually being adaptive. Right. Now, we should be careful. Um, under certain circumstances, a out-of-round is right. Uh, we talked about, for example, if you're a, uh, a fighter pilot in the middle of uh, a dogfight, um, big chunks of sensory capacity and sense-making need to be not input, uh, and you actually need to have a, a different shape than in-round. But, and this is actually, I mean, we could, we could do the whole complicated complex thing as well, um, that being in a pure, in a high-quality sphere is maximally adaptive under uncertain conditions, meaning in environments where what the future is going to look like is not exactly the same as it looks right now. And then in that case, it is for sure the case that a sphere is the best geometry. And I think we, one way of saying it would be, so the fighter pilot obviously has to be in taking information, making sense of that information and acting on it. But the information about how 
uh, much they need to go to the bathroom and lots of other things they need to really suppress and hyper pay attention to their visual cues and their right. whatever, right? <clears throat> but the adaptive capacity to be able to pay attention to the right information and to not pay attention to the wrong information, because then when that same person is making love or tending to a baby, it's different things they need to pay attention to with their right. limited bandwidth. So right. we and could this say... Is- it's this always actually, round. It's just different rounds based on the environment. Yeah, well, I guess state switching between domains is the problem. And so right. what happens in, in, the, in the game A is that training will build whatever your roundness is in a given domain. But you don't have the individual agency, the individual capacity to do your own kind of state switching and your own kind of designing of your own sovereignty in a given domain. So I what you end up having is... Go ahead. Most of the fighter pilots and other... Uh, you know, people highly trained in military coming back after the war and being really maladapted to a non-war environment. Right, exactly. So they've been they've been pushed by external extrinsic factors into a particular subspecialization of what is in fact very high quality sovereignty in a very specific domain. But at the cost of their in fact actual intrinsic, we might call it human sovereignty. Uh, and that, that, I guess that's kind of the point. It's a really good example. All of us, in some sense, have PTSD. All of us, in some very important sense, have actually undergone that process of losing our intrinsic human sovereignty to become who we want to be and in any kind of context, and have become, to a greater or lesser extent, very specialized and having been separated from um, our core capacity. Um, so then, what does what does education? for sovereign beings look like. Yeah, so this was actually the third thing that I wanted to talk about um, on the education arc is that it's, it's interesting, actually, I think quite uh, lucky that we're actually coming into this problem from two distinct directions. So one direction is the what happens to the <clears throat> educational model, the German model, in a pace of accelerating change. And what I mean by that is in a pace where, for example, um, having asymmetric information becomes less and less true. Having access to information becomes more and more of a commodity, right? It doesn't really matter at all if I, it's actually a really good example. I remember this when I was in, kind of in high school. Um, there was a time when knowing the multiplication tables in your head was extremely useful. Uh, now is not that time, right? The, the, if, if I am separated from a device that can calculate long division, I've actually got bigger problems than my inability to calculate long division. Um, and so that's, that's no longer a functional capacity. It doesn't matter, right? I can just import that capacity through some kind of tool and do it a hell of a lot better than I could ever have done it by spending countless hours learning how to do it internally. And that's just too generic. So think about driving, you know, driving around. Not only is like having, being able to read a map becoming an obsolete skill, but soon driving it all is going to be an obsolete skill, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right? So the output, the thing for which this authoritarian, authoritarian training regime was ever useful which was putting specialized knowledge in the hands of specialized people who could operate within a hierarchical framework, that entire thing is becoming obsolete at light speed. Um, so one side of the equation is, okay, well, shit, if we want to go through the basic art of, call it retraining or educating anyone to be adaptive to the future environment, what we have to do is we have to unwind a lot of that and think about, okay, well, you're, you're going to be in, in not 10 careers in your lifetime, but 10,000 careers in the next day, right? Something like that, where the only possible approach is to maximize your individual sovereignty, right? Your individual capacity for where you are to perceive where you are and what is needful now. 
And if, by the way, it turns out that you don't have the capacity to address what's needful now, how to build that capacity, right? So um, learning about how to learn uh, and learning about how to have the, uh, the stick with itness to be able to commit to doing what you have to learn, learning how to have emotional resilience to deal with circumstances where you're overwhelmed by your environment, like really deep fundamental core capacities that are completely absent from education as we currently know it. And, or if they are learned, they're learned willy nilly and um, are fundamentally applicable under any possible circumstance. Right? And then what ends up happening is you have a, a sovereign being who then shows up in a given domain, rapidly pulls together the specific domain, specific skills they need to have, maybe even subspecializes, but never becomes the subspecialty, always maintains the integrity of their core sovereignty. Um, this, this was a key thing. Never becomes it means something at an identity level. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I am not a fighter pilot. I, do, I fly fighters sometimes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not a fireman. I'm not a banker. I'm not X, Y, or Z. Um, that's something that I do sometimes. Um, it's something that I, I, it's a game that I play, right? It's moving into a state where you are not the games you play. You play games, but you are not the games you play. Now, this was also key that for most people in game A, game A is already defined. Like, you know, if you go play most games, right? You go play soccer, Monopoly, the rules are already set. And the question is, can you get good at doing it? Right. And when you're learning uh, subjects in school, the answers are already set. There's clear right and wrong. Can you get do a good job at getting that right? And then when you go work at a company, it's the same thing, right? Someone else is setting the objectives of the company. And so you mostly have to have a very little bit of sovereignty within whatever domain space isn't fully specified, but towards a goal that someone else set. Mm-hmm. And so you don't have to self-assess what needs done and how to go about doing it. You have to get trained in a very specific capacity and do that. Most people who've been trained that way so intensely, the idea of assessing what needs done and how to go about doing it without someone else telling them how to do it is overwhelming. Yeah, it's really challenging. And I think this is showing up more and more and more. And so that's going to show up uh, particularly heavily on the other side of the coin, which is the people who are in fact obsolete or, or their identity, their skills uh, the thing that keeps them busy is rendered obsolete. Um, because in that case, they are going to feel overwhelmed in a lot of different dimensions. And it is in fact simply the case that they're going to need to learn how to come back and begin to self-assess because, uh, you know, the notion that we're going to be able to programmatically tell everybody what to do is one, not very reasonable and two terrible if it is, if, it, if we could pull it off. Um, so what ends up happening is we have to find a way to, on mass rebuild that core kernel, which is okay, you know, reclaim your sovereignty, reclaim your ability to make the choices that are your responsibility to make and take ownership for the consequences of those choices back out in the world. Um, which as it turns out, by the way, in terms of like just games is actually where fun lives. You know, it's a, it's a, a very common experience among people who play, uh, say video games, computer games, that um, any game where you're playing against a machine, which is to say where the game is ultimately finite, has a very specific curve to it, where when you're first in it, it actually feels really fun because you're exploring where it actually kind of feels real. After some little bit, little bit, you begin to actually understand where it's not real and begin to optimize for the game aspects. Uh, and then you actually have an accelerating arc of have sort of like a visceral response because now you're winning. You can actually win the game. No longer, no longer are you playing the game, you're now winning the game. 
But at a certain point, you become so good at winning the game that you no longer actually get any kind of visceral feedback from winning the game. It's no longer interesting because you've now gamed the game and achieving certain kinds of characteristics like getting scores um, becomes diminishing returns. And this, by the way, is true of any finite domain, right? When you first enter into the finite domain, the act of exploring is really interesting and fulfilling. Then you've optimized, you've found out what the shape of the domain is and what kinds of things work and what don't work. So then the act of optimizing has a visceral response because that's where the, that's where the rewards come. But if you become that thing that's optimizing, then you're now locked into a circumstance where at some point you're going to go over the top of the curve and now you're getting diminishing returns. Um, and of course, the point is that if you become that thing, you've actually lost the ability to move out and jump into other kinds of games willy-nilly or play games that don't have those characteristics at all. So when we think about optimizing humans for sovereignty so that they could move between doing fighter pilot or making love or raising a baby or assessing a totally foreign environment or whatever, right? Um, there's obviously education that's involved and you also started in terms of how to learn new skills, right? There's meta education, epistemology. How do I assess when I need a new skill? How do I go about learning new skills? Well, you know, there's all, all of that, but you also said one has to be able to deal with the emotions that arise in new environments. So there's emotional skills and personal skills. And then, you know, we also related the topic of medicine and healthcare to this and that we move from just a, uh, sick care model to a sovereignty optimization where people's physiology and their state and their ability to address it is also part of that. So, and obviously with Neurohacker, we're starting to look at mind brain, right? The, there's a goal there. So what we talked earlier about how things like economics and like macro world things affect people's health through, uh, advertising dynamics that are sending the hypernormal stimuli of sugar all the time, right? Through marketing. Mm -hmm. But then there's this other side of do people's physical health, well-being affect macro dynamics? And if so, how, and how is that part of the sovereignty optimization? I'm sorry, I didn't understand that. Tell me, ask that again. So <clears throat> you mean along the lines of does a population where everybody in the population is depressed show up, for example, in different politics? Yes. Okay. Uh, and different, I think by, cons, different consumption patterns, crime patterns, whatever. Right. I mean, I, I, obviously, the, the way that I asked that question makes it pretty easy to answer. The answer is obviously yes. Um, and it's funny, like we can do it like all, all the way down. Uh, so let's say, for example, uh, you're somebody who has um, a particular addictive response to uh, anxiety where you eat food. Uh, because the, the visceral act of eating a food causes your body to have certain dumps of endorphins um, and serotonin levels go up. And so therefore you, your anxiety levels ambiently feel like they go down. And so you more or less feel like you're back into uh, being okay. Um, so then you're going to have the characteristic of overeating. Well, interestingly enough, if lots and lots of people have that characteristic, then you're going to have a, an economy that is going to begin to optimize for those kinds of choices which is bizarre. Like you have both, you have a feedback loop. On the one hand, people who have an addiction to that particular approach to dealing with anxiety are actually generating a real economic signal of, I want more things that are subject to overeating. Um, and therefore those food artifacts that do actually satisfy that addiction well, like say potato chips. Um, and on the other side, 
you have a uh, manipulation media and advertising infrastructure that is incentivized to push people into domains that are likely to be triggered by that particular addictive response because that will maximize their ability to generate profits on the products they've already spent time investing in. Um, that's a really bad feedback loop. Um, and then you can imagine that, say, for example, you're somebody who's in the industry and you're present to the reality of this feedback loop, then you're going to have to be engaging in your own personal adaptive response, which some people call um, as if sociopathy, meaning that if you're present to the negative consequences of the choice that you are locally responsible for, you either have to choose to be delusional, which is to say to not take your own responsibility seriously and imagine something that just isn't reality. Um, suicidal, meaning you have to actually make choices that you think are in fact good for the whole, but are definitely not good for you locally. Um, or a sociopath, meaning you have to be willing to accept the fact that consequences of your choices are good for you but not good for the whole. Um, any one of which is, in fact, a terrible thing. And, 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 and what's interesting is that no given individual agent acting on their own is likely going to be able to resolve that problem. Um, and the game dynamics are if you do the thing that's good for the whole and bad for you, you lose. And so, so, then, so over time, iteratively, there are few people, fewer and fewer people who choose that. And more and more people who choose either the as if sociopathy or the lie. That's right. Yeah, and so it ends up happening now. If you imagine that at a neurological level, you spend, let's say, 10 hours a day in a space where you're combining a variation on as if sociopathy and delusion, you're actually going to have congenital neurological changes, um, which are going to show up in all the rest of the ways that you show up in life. So you're going to have a weird relationship with your spouse, and you're going to have a weird relationship with your kids, and you're going to make weird choices in politics. And you're going to I mean, it's just going to continue to go. Um, which is not that different than saying, for example, if you had an entire population that was addicted to opium or an entire population that was uh, sort of functionally alcoholic, which, by the way, was, you know, the medieval, me medieval Europe uh, could be characterized as an entire population who are functionally alcoholic. Um, and I think pre, uh, like mid-19th century giant parts of America had that same characteristic. So you know, we can run this at a, neuro, at a physiological level. We can run it at a behavioral level. Uh, we can run at the feedback loops between them, uh, but that's you know it's important to take into account the fact that that's the case, uh, and then think about what kind of levers. Again, we keep coming back to the same notion of when you see the whole, you see how all the pieces feed back on each other. Um, it is, in fact, just necessary just to be thoughtful on how they feed back on each other, and how does one begin to engage in this subtle process, which I don't think, by the way, is actually sort of intrinsically harder than other things that we do well. It's just not something we've actually developed a lot of skillfulness in yet. Uh, I think that the practice of being able to be perceptive of how many, many various systems operate and being able to be skillful in shifting them in desired ways is actually just something that we need to build skill at. Um, I don't think it's something that is obviously beyond our capacities. Okay, so I want to restate and underline something that Jordan just said for everyone listening because it's so key. When he's talking about the feedback loops here, <clears throat> so wait, is it that demand drives supply or is it that supply drives demand? It's very much both, and it's really critical to get that, of course, originally demand drives supply. More people want something and supply steps up, but then you have a real source of supply and you want to manufacture, you want to protect the demand because otherwise your business goes out and maybe manufacture more demand. And that looks like marketing, that looks like whatever to create manufactured demand. So supply is driving demand, demand is driving supply, and you can get feedback loops that move in the wrong direction, right? Move in the direction of society as a whole getting worse. Mm -hmm. And similarly, we have dynamics where 
you know, this very much just addressed one of the core differences between what the rational left-right argument has largely been about. The, is the individual, do individuals create the whole, so you want to optimize for the sovereignty of the individuals, or are the individuals affected by the whole, so you want to make good social systems that make good individuals? And it's very much both. Mm -hmm. And so you want to make good educational systems, good economic systems that condition better people. You also want to make more sovereign people that lead to uh, better whole systems. But when we start thinking about these feedback loops, and the same is true with if someone is in an economic system that's causing certain kinds of stress and certain kinds of behavior, does that affect their brain and their health? Yes. But if we also are, uh, does someone's, what they're doing with their diet and with their physicality that's affecting their brain and health then affect the decisions that they make in the world? Yes. It's very much both. And so mind-brain interface is a classic one, like supply and demand, like individual and collective. And to really get the basins of attraction right, we have to not think about either or. We have to think about the synergies and the feedback loops. Yeah, this, this reminds me actually of <clears throat> what, I, what I noticed, and I hadn't expected it to be the case, but I noticed that there was a, a, a reasonably common uh, misconception um, coming back from, from people about Neurohacker, which was because we had specifically focused on the physiological you know, body, mind, a body, brain piece, of the equation, um, that somehow we were also collapsing the entire space down to just that one thing. Mm -hmm. Right. So that we're saying, Hey, this is the, uh, the elixir of all good things and just do this and everything will be okay. Um, when in point of fact, of course, obviously that can't be the case that, um, every single component of all behavioral, interpersonal, social, cognitive, um, and many, many different kinds of biochemical characteristics are all necessary to achieve well-being. Um, you, you have to learn how to eat right. You have to learn how to um, engage in the various kinds of mindfulness and or physical practices that are appropriate to you to do well. You have to actually have self-awareness to know how to answer the question of what's appropriate to you. I mean, these are all, uh, it's, it's, it's actually, I think this creates the highest, frankly, the highest degree of optimism in the context of the, of the scope of the problems we're trying to deal with, which is that the, the core answers to all the problems end up actually being very similar. Meaning that, yep, you want to solve a problem around health, you want to solve a problem around education, you want to solve a problem around economy, you want to solve a problem around war. First and foremost, always already bring it all the way back down to core capacities um, because you can't respond to any of them unless you have them. And if you do have them, your ability to respond to all of them basically just becomes fungible. You know, they're, they're more or less domain uh, in specific. Um, and then there was actually something that, that came to me as you were describing as you were talking a few moments ago, that, that I thought in the path that I thought might be very interesting to share. Um, it's, 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 it's stated in an evolutionary language. So you know, in, in traditional evolution, you have, you have an organism uh, and you have the, the landscape or the, the ecosystem in which that organism is uh, existing. And, and the basic idea is that the, the organism is, is striving to be fit, meaning it had to... to um, compete for scarce resources, which may be its own body against predators, um, and be able to, to reproduce. Um, and one of the interesting things that exists in an organism's portfolio of actions is a, a concept called uh, niche production. Right? So if you happen to be, uh, let's say, really, really good at thriving in the swamp, uh, if you have the capacity to turn more of the world into swamp, that's to your local advantage. Um, but of course, it turns out that there's a, a problem, that if 
you become so capable of constraining and controlling your environment that you lose your individual adaptive capacity, then if and when something happens that pushes the environment out of your control, so the swamp turns into desert, you're just dead. Right? So there's very interesting balance between niche construction and intrinsic adaptive capacity. But there's actually even a higher order synthesis between those two, which we may actually just be, we humans may just be uniquely entering to the possibility of perceiving and doing, um, and in fact may actually be necessary that we do it, which is if you can come to the point where you can actually have full responsibility for your individual well-being and for the enduring well-being of the niche in which you live, um, and now... As an organism, you are no longer evolving in a niche. You and your niche are in fact co-evolving such that the integrity between the two is fully maintained, meaning that your niche does better, the better you do, and you do better, the better your niche does. That has an endurance characteristic that um, cannot be achieved through any other evolutionary strategy. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I think that is a great place to leave this one on because we have went long here and covered a lot of territory from um, uh, economics and then crypto economics and blockchain to education, healthcare, medicine, sovereignty, uh, niche construction versus intrinsic adaptiveness. So I think this will be a fun one for people to figure out how to make show notes of. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, if anyone wants to see more of Jordan's thinking on these topics, sometimes he writes on medium and it's worth go just Google Jordan medium, Jordan Greenhall, And you'll see he's got actually some really epic articles on uh, sense making and politics and uh, sense making applied to different domains like that. And uh, yeah, this was fun. This was good. Yeah, it was fun. All right. Continue. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Collective Insights. For the full show notes on this episode and for more great interviews, visit us at neurohacker.com slash collective insights. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Want to learn a better strategy for mental well-being? We designed a beautifully illustrated 32-page guide integrating care for your mind, brain, body, and environment into a balanced approach for a better life. Download the foundational guide to neurohacking at neurohacker.com backslash guide.